นโมทัสสะบุกวะโตระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุกวะโตระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุกวะโตระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสะWhat are the skillful ways to work with this inner critic? Also, at times the judging mind can appear to be discriminating wisdom. How can one tell them apart? Thank you. So, thank you. Um, marvelous question. Now I say marvelous question because it's certainly something that. Having worked on this myself, I see the very, a very real benefit from arriving at a, a clear perspective on the compulsive judging mind. Um, and indeed, if we don't know the difference between the compulsive judging mind and, as this person points out, uh, that. Tendency of discriminating wisdom. If we don't know the difference, well, it can be a real struggle. So, in fact, I would say, you know, for the greater part of my life, I didn't know the difference. And so, what was dominant was the compulsive judging mind. And even though there may have been some potential for conventional discriminating wisdom, it was clouded. And so, uh, it is a, a very good subject to investigate. And so, I do use the word. Compulsive judging mind, because I think that identifies uh, the disorder, if you like. Yeah. Um, we don't want to do away with the uh, capacity of mind to discriminate, and this is how we uh, establish ourselves in feeling safe. So this is a safe situation. This is not a safe situation. If we didn't have a discriminating mind, we wouldn't be able to discern. And what is wholesome, what is unwholesome. But the same faculty that is discriminating on that level, if the process becomes compulsive, then it tortures us, and we don't get a break from it. Yeah. And in my own investigation of this, I would see that it's uh, a lot of it's to do with the the culture and the education system. That we all went through, that uh, this this particular aspect of our intelligence, the discriminative intelligence, is what's highlighted. Yeah, the, the 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 split off intellectual, uh, abstract mind. Is, uh, of course, it's done wonderful things for us. It's produced science, which has got its great benefits, and but the fact that this. Aspect of our intelligence is not as often not embodied, 
is that it becomes split off from the intuitive faculty. And, and so our education system, I, when I went to school, uh, I don't think I ever heard the word intuition. Uh, well, the, the whole concept of unitive intelligence, which is perhaps the poets. When we, my English teacher tried to teach me poetry, he might have been alluding to unitive intelligence, or, 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 which is love where the mind stops discriminating, stops taking sides, stops picking and choosing. Um, but that is the, the, the domain or the territory of the spiritual inquiry, indeed. But because of the way most of us got brought up, what got emphasised, and I would say overemphasised, was the discriminative intelligence. And so in school, the more, the more opinions you have, the more clever your opinions are, the quicker you can put up your hand and say, I know then the more points you get. Now, of course, developing that aspect of our minds indeed has a great benefit. But if we can consider what, what happens when it's overemphasized, what happens is, in my experience, is it becomes my identity or part of my identity. I am as good as I can discriminate. And in fact, to the point where when I, you know, I'm afraid of stopping thinking. Think all the time. Can't stop thinking. Can't stop discriminating. Go to bed at night. Somebody criticizes me, and and actually they don't know what they're talking about. It was completely wrong. So no problem. Drop it. Go to bed and go to sleep and have a nice rest and wake up in the morning. Well, often it doesn't happen like that. Somebody criticizes me, and they say, well, actually that's not true. So, but maybe it's true. Say, well, maybe. They what are they criticizing? Actually, they shouldn't have said that. And and then there's this compulsive judging kicks in. They shouldn't have said that. Or maybe we reacted back and had a go at them. Somebody insulted me and so we insult them. And we get into an argy-bargy and, and one-upmanship and, and things get all heated. And, and then afterwards we remember ourselves and say, oh, God, all these years of practice, you know, when am I ever going to stop getting pulled into this competing? And, and then we judge ourselves for that. Compulsive judging mind. Very painful. Very painful one. And so this person is asking about this. So, well, I would say the first thing to do is to see, well, it should be that way. We're supposed to have a compulsive judging mind because that's the way we were programmed. If, like all of these, when any suffering arises, the Buddha says, the, I teach two things. I teach suffering and the cessation of suffering. So if we want the cessation of suffering, we want the freedom that the Buddha realized and said is available to human beings, what we've got to do is to study suffering. So the first thing, first noble truth, is to accept that this is suffering. When suffering arises, like the compulsive judging mind, the first thing we do, the first approach to it is, needs to be to say, this is how it is. Usually our first approach is it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't be this way. The world shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. Yeah. And that's the habit. That's the, so we can, if we, we're suffering from this, uh, this particular suffering, compulsive judging, criticizing ourselves, criticizing other people, criticizing the world, whatever. The first approach is to say, well, it, it should be this way. We're supposed to have a compulsive judging mind because we were programmed this way. Nothing wrong. Well, then we're in a position we can work with it. 
if we're so identified with the compulsive judging mind that we're even judging the judging mind, which is absolutely normally what happens, I shouldn't be judging, you know, I shouldn't be judging the judging, and there's, you know, well, that's like if you get into that, that's, uh, that's a real tangle, a real knot. And you can't stop it. You look at, wherever you go, I mean, if you happen to be like me, you've got three or four planets in Virgo, I mean, I can criticise everything. You know, wherever I go, I can criticise. I just look, and I can, even though I'm, you know, my eyesight's going, my hearing's going, it doesn't stop me being critical. You know, I can walk into the most beautiful room and my eye will go, and think there's something wrong there, whatever. And the smallest little thing, well, it's just the way my faculties have been wired. And you don't have to take it personally, but you do have to take responsibility for it, because if you don't, <laughs> it's going to drag you down. And so the way of taking responsibility for it is to see how it affects us. Say, this is making me suffer. This relationship with the judging mind is causing suffering. Wherever I go, I criticise myself, I criticise people, I criticise the place. And nothing's good enough. There's no contentment. So if we really want to take that on, we say, okay, I take full responsibility for this and I'm not going to judge the judging mind. I'm not going to play that game. You know, it's, it, it's gone on far too long. You know, judging the judging mind, there's no end to it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. Just watch it. We have this faculty. This is what it's about. This is why mindfulness is exalted in the Buddha's teaching. So many of the other spiritual faculties are exalted and encouraged in other religions, but what the Buddha really held up high was sati, sati panya, mindfulness and, and wisdom. This mindfulness is a spiritual faculty. It's a spiritual faculty. It's, and it needs to be worked on, needs to be honed down. Now, for most of us, our uh, faculty of awareness or mindfulness is, I would say, is, uh, is disfigured or polluted. Like talking about my, my awareness and totally caught up in my conditioned mind. I'm aware of something, then whoop, there's a judgment. That's not very good awareness. So it's like getting around the dark with a battery that's nearly flat. You can't see where you're going. You're tripping over all the time. If you want to see where you're going, and it is dark a lot of the time, you know, I mean inwardly, I mean today it's glorious and bright and so on, but inwardly there's not always a lot of light there and we want to see where we're going. We need pristine awareness. So we need to work on our awareness. We need to work on our mindfulness. And one of the best places to start is with this compulsive judging mind. So this, I say, this is a great question. This is, this is, not, a, this is not a misfortune. This is, a, this is an indicator when we see that the compulsive judging mind is tripping it up, that's good news. We already started to be free from it. And so we look at it and investigate it. We don't make an enemy of it. So when it arises, uh, I recommend people actually make a, a meditation out of it. Well, since I discovered this myself and the benefit of it, no judging the judging mind became a mantra for me for a while. When I discovered this, and the, the, the freedom that comes with it. Wonderful. Your awareness. Can you, you know, you can make mistakes, and up comes the perception of I made a mistake. No judgment. Oh, that's all right. I just learned from it. But if we've got a compulsive judging mind, up comes a mistake, whether it's by body, speech, or mind, up comes a mistake. Oh, I shouldn't have done that, and they shouldn't have done that. And this horrible thing just starts, this story comes and kicks in. And, yeah. No judgment. Then you say, up comes the perception of I made a mistake. Oh, no judgment. But I want to judge. Somebody should be blamed for this. See, the judging mind, there it is. 
No judging the judging mind. I've played that game for long enough. I'm not under an obligation to judge the judging mind. You are completely entitled, totally free, to stop judging the judging tendency of mind. We have that. We have that. That's, an op- that's a possibility for us. Whether we exercise that possibility or not, well, it does take a bit of effort because the momentum of the compulsive judging mind, we find our identity in it. There's a lot of me in it. And as the Buddha said, going against the self is the most difficult thing you can do. Is that verse conquering a thousand times a thousand men in battle on your own is easy compared to conquering the self. Yeah, the identification with this conditioned body mind, this meanness, there's so much sense of security in it. When we don't find our security in it anymore, we start to find fear. We start to fall apart. So even going against something as painful and obviously unfortunate as the compulsive judging mind, there's a lot of resistance to it. But the resistance is coming from the conditioned, artificial sense of identity. It's not our true identity. We can't lose who we are. We can't lose who we really are. All we can lose is a dream or an image, an artificial story about who we are. But when we've been believing in that story for a long time, well, it is, it's like an addiction. It's difficult. So that's why we don't be too quick going into this. Uh, give it all the time. You know, your compulsive judging mind kicks in again. You say, well, I should have got over it by now. That's fine. You can think that thought. No problem. No judgment. The wonderful feeling of having a, an awareness that's been freed from compulsive judging. It's so spacious, so accommodating. So I recommend people, um, actually, uh, sometimes, I, I, as I said before, I meet people who have been meditating for many years and I feel stuck and, and really obstructed. And, and when they talk to me about their practice, these are people who have had many years keeping good moral precepts and generous, kind, dedicated, and yet when they talk about their meditation, it's, it's just so loaded with judgment. And I listen to them and I... There's just this pain of, you know, fighting themselves, taking position against themselves. I shouldn't be this way. I should be better. And so sometimes, often I recommend, say, I think uh, you want to just stop meditating for a while and um, make a determination to sit in an armchair for 10 minutes every day. You know, they've been hammering away their 40 minutes or their hour at their meditation technique for years and... And just feel so struck. Say, okay, just, just, just take a holiday. Sit in your armchair for ten minutes every evening, six days a week, not seven days because it gets boring then. So six days a week, just sit there and do nothing except see if you can catch a glimpse of the compulsive judging mind. So you just try it. And when you try it, you're used to meditating. You're sitting in your armchair. It's not very long before this voice comes up and says, you should be meditating. Oh, there it is. Interesting. A troublemaker. I shouldn't be judging. Oh, there it is again. I shouldn't be judging the judging. There it is again. Now, once you start to get a handle, it becomes incredibly interesting. It becomes phenomenally interesting. It's like, it's like when you, you realize, you start to get a handle on, on if you, there's something wrong with your diet and, and you're sick. And you start to get a handle. Oh, actually, that makes a difference. If you've been sick and you start to get well and you realize what it is that's healing you, as this enthusiasm comes out. What's going to heal the heart is if we stop taking sides for and against ourselves. 
So there are causes for us to be this way. It's not wrong, perfectly understandable. The conditioned mind is partial, taking sides for and against all the time. That's, we weren't taught about unitive intelligence. Maybe we had the good fortune to meet somebody who embodied it a little bit and some bells went off and we knew, oh yeah, there is something else in life and that's a wonderful gift. But mostly all we got was discriminative intelligence. So we're supposed to be this way. We've seen the consequence of it, which is it hurts, and that's very important. And then we become interested in doing something about it. And so that's where we want to make the effort. Seeing the consequence of getting it wrong is, is a very important part of practice and needs to be emphasized. You know, something the Buddha talked about in, in, in our, all our attachments. Before we can see the benefit of letting go, before we can experience the benefit of letting go and the consequence of right practice, we have to first feel the consequence of clinging. Mm-hmm. So that's again, you know, those of you that are suffering over this compulsive judging mind, that's not something going wrong, that's just a message, that's all. You know, that's just a message coming through loud and clear. Because we're caught up in preferences, we say we don't like suffering, so it's wrong, it shouldn't be this way. Well, we've got to pull back from that, inhibit that, and you say, no judging. Yeah. And you just feel the impulse to get pulled into that. Oh, that's painful. That conditioning of mind, that habit of, is painful. And we have the choice to let go. We can cling, but we can let go. And that's seeing the consequences. And when we see the consequences of clinging then we can immediately start to taste the benefit of letting go. And that's the inspiration. So they go together. And this, is, this principle, by the way, applies in all sorts of things in our lives, in our practice. Somebody mentioned to me recently about how they'd just come out of a, a period of meditation and the perception came into their mind of having indulged in wrong speech, you know, some gossip or backbiting or something. And then in the quietude, and the stillness of having just been meditating, there's this, it came out and said, oh, there's the cause, here's the result, pain. And just seeing that, just seeing that, seeing the consequences of grasping, of identifying with wrong speech, there's the immediate recognition that there's the cause of suffering, and then there's the letting go. Then there's the recognition, the feeling, the benefit. And so see how they go together. So again, to, to register this, that when we're suffering... That's the message. It's not a sign something's going wrong. It's just a message. Like you stub your foot. It's supposed to hurt. And if it didn't hurt, well, then you maybe go around with a stubbed foot and get an infection and then eventually lose your foot. <laughs> That'd be a pity. The pain is a message that's saying, pay attention here. And you pay attention, you do something about it. Likewise, the pain in our hearts of the compulsive judging mind is not something going wrong. This is a, a symptom of our wholeness. This is a symptom of our... The fact that we can see it is a sign. This is wisdom speaking. Saying, so pay attention here. So, okay, we're heeding it. And we look at it and, and start to investigate and see, oh, yeah, there's the cause. Getting, being caught up in this. And so there's the pain, there's the consequence. And, so, and then there's the interest and then we do something about it. So I would recommend making a meditation out of it. You know, Ten minutes a day just to sit and do nothing. Look at the clock. So I'm not going to do anything but just sit and watch the judging mind. And great benefits come from it. Even five minutes if you're too busy for ten minutes. Just five minutes. And until we've got a good handle on that, well, my experience is really you don't want to go too much further in meditation because 
you can, you know, as willful characters, you know, a lot of intellectual discipline, that's what we're trained in. We can really focus on our meditation. We can generate some interesting energies and get a little deeper into our psyche. And something really nice might happen. I hope it does. But if you haven't got a handle on the compulsive judging mind, what happens is at that moment when something nice happens, instead of bringing awareness in, as the Buddha said in the, in the, uh, in the in his classic teachings on meditation, instead of when bliss or joy arises, the meditator knows there is joy. Instead of mindfulness coming up and saying there is joy, what comes up is this is how it should be, and we cling. And that's really unfortunate. At the moment, it may not feel unfortunate, it might feel absolutely lovely because, you know, when you really lose yourself in bliss, it can become even more blissful for a while. But the bad news is what comes later, which if we cling at that subtle level of consciousness, we've cultivated a habit of clinging on that level of consciousness. And so that when something really painful happens, like loss, grief, you know, we again go into a deeper level of consciousness, what happens is the habit of clinging is established. And so we cling there as well, and we cling to the sadness we cling to the pain, and it's even worse than it could possibly be before. So I hope you can understand that. That's why I suggest you to really get a handle on the non-judgmental mind, non-judgmental awareness, judgment-free awareness, before we go too deep in meditation. You know, judgment-free awareness, when we've got that, then we can exercise the spiritual disciplines, get deep, get subtle, have some lovely things happening. And then, oh, there's equanimity and awareness, and there's knowing, oh, there Appreciation, appreciative awareness rather than grasping. And then when suffering arises, there's actually discernment functioning instead of grasping. And then we can investigate. When there's equanimity and discernment alive, pristine awareness, then we can investigate the suffering. Yes, there's probably impulses to cling to it and to judge, to get rid of it, to resist. And that's why it's lasted so long. Yes, those impulses are there. But if we've generated this judgment-free awareness, well, then there's a chance that we're not going to say it shouldn't be this way. And we just watch it. And then the, the feeling awareness, the intuitive awareness, as Ajahn Sumoto says, that feeling investigation, not a, just a mental proliferation, but a feeling sensing this dukkha complex that's arisen, that with interest, with equanimity, with sensitivity, and with that kind of investigation, up comes the understanding. Oh, that's the cause. That's where the clinging is. And that's what the heart of judgment-free awareness can do. So it's worth cultivating, but it does take some effort because we have some pretty serious uh, momentum behind the compulsive judging. But when we see the compulsive judging, all we have to do is say, I'm not playing that game anymore. I just don't want to play that game anymore. You know, like sometimes when you're kids or teenagers and you get into this game playing, backbiting or being nasty to each other and then you realize how hurtful it is and you say, I don't want to play that game anymore. I'm just not going to talk like that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. And you know because you just don't want to do it. Well, it's the same when you realize that compulsive judging mind is, is hurting yourself. It's like digging darts in yourself. You say, I'm not going to play that game anymore. And then you can really exercise the discipline. And the more you look at it, the better it feels, the more spacious your heart and mind becomes, and the more you can accommodate life. People who don't have any taste with decorating their rooms, you can just be there and you don't have to fall apart. <laughs> yeah. 
Ajahn Vimalo, apparently, he says, Ajahn Menendo is the only person who can walk into a room that's badly decorated and throw up. Yeah, well, I want Ajahn Vimalo to realise that I've moved on a little bit in my practice. It's not. It's true that I do have the capacity for feeling um, preferences with regards to how people arrange space. That's true. But I have also put a bit of effort into seeing how that compulsive judging mind is not beautiful. It doesn't help. So if to just really get a clear conceptual understanding of this and then to exercise the interest and say, well, maybe I can get free from it. I think you can. I think anybody can. I think any human being can. And then to bring this, as this is one of the great skills in meditation. Those of you who've been around here for a while know that there's three basic skills that I, I talk about, the three primary skills in meditation or in spiritual life in general. Even people who don't necessarily feel called to do a lot of formal meditation but feel drawn to developing the spiritual dimension of their life the three aspects. An attention that is established here and now. An attention, awareness that's established in the whole body-mind. An attention, awareness that's established in judgment-free awareness. Those three things, those three skills and If we develop them, well, then we can go deeper into practice. Now, just to work on the level of judgment-free awareness is, as I'm saying, is not enough. There also needs to be a sense of the uh, uh, an awareness that permeates the whole body mind. Now, we, a lot of us, again, in the way we were trained and educated, uh, tend to be uh, comfortable up here in our heads. And it can become a habit that we become disconnected. Mm. Particularly blokes, you know, for all sorts of reasons of conditioning. There's whole, a lot of men I meet and talk about meditation is just dead here. Nothing, nothing going on. And even some people talk about feeling cold, just feeling frozen here. And that's absolutely what's happened. You know. Certain feelings, emotions early on in life, is, it's threatening or not allowed or, or for whatever reason... We exercise our willfulness and we just block it off. I am not going to feel that. Yeah. I'm just refused to feel that. This has happened many, many times for monks as, as well as, as lay practitioners who talk about the meditation practice. It's just the awareness can't occupy this area. It's just cold and there's nothing there. And so it can take a long time actually to warm up and to, for awareness to permeate the whole body-mind because there's a lot going on here. A lot of stuff sitting here. And uh, in, in our awareness practice, we have to incorporate everything. There's nothing that doesn't get included in our spiritual practice. Somebody asked me the other day, what's the point of, of being a Buddhist monk? And I said, to free the, the mind from greed, aversion and delusion. That's, that's it. And not just the Buddhist monk, but the whole point of Buddhism. To free, the, free our being from greed, aversion and delusion. We could say, well, it's to realise wisdom and compassion. That's true also, but that tends to incline people to think, well, they don't have wisdom and compassion, they've got to get it. You know, what the Buddha talked about was actually, he says, I teach two things, suffering and the cessation of suffering. Yeah. It's the four noble truths. It's even simpler than four, it's just the two. Yeah. So it's not that we don't have enough goodies already. Basically, we've got too much. We've got too many habits of, of getting lost in sensations of body and speech and 
and mind. We're getting lost in these things. And so there's these tendencies get developed of distraction. Distracted by greed, distracted by ill will, distracted by delusions until they become compulsions. And then they reach the stage of being, uh, tragically, being poisons. And this is the predicament for most people. Uh, Our consciousness is poisoned by greed, aversion and delusion. So to to make this a a spiritual discipline, as it seems to me this is what the Buddhist path is about, that's what all the teachings are about, how to give us the skills to free ourselves from greed, aversion and delusion. It's the whole body-mind that we have to investigate because certain stuff happens. Stuff happens, greed happens, aversion happens, fear happens. And if it happens in a way and at a time when we don't know how to live through the suffering, then it gets stored into the body. And often this this happens, I would say, for all of us it happens early on in life. Depending on how it happens and how much of it happens, well then, when we start meditating, if we already have access to the whole body-mind, well then, little by little, we just deal with this old stuff and it comes up, it surfaces, you let it go. For many of us, it's not so easy. You've got to be very, very patient. And years you can be practicing, and then up, oh, where did that come from? My goodness. Big surprise. Sometimes it takes a real focused discipline to, to bring awareness into the body. And again, as an exercise in meditation, I think it's very useful to develop the, the skill of, of breathing into all parts of the body. In meditation, in formal meditation, can spend the first 10, 15 minutes sitting there, scanning through the whole body, from the head to the toe, just breathing in to the left ear, and feeling the left ear, breathing into the right ear, feeling the right ear, breathing into the chin, and moving down, and the little finger, until you're right at the little toe, you can really breathe into the little toe. Or also, last thing at night before going to sleep, it's a very good exercise, lying there in bed, just breathing into the whole body, goes through the whole body from the head down to the toe. Probably fall asleep before you get to the toe, but that's all right anyway. Yeah. And in so doing, what we're doing is, is, is bringing light into this whole body, yeah. bringing the awareness into the whole body-mind, not just a split-off little part of our intellectual capacity. So judgment-free awareness, whole body-mind, and the other skill I referred to is particularly important is here and now. Because we can be doing all of these things, whole body-mind, judgment-free awareness, but still have very strong habits of dwelling on the past or getting lost in the future. And so it's a primary discipline, a primary skill before we get too deep, too subtle in meditation is to recognize that we can train awareness in this way. Here and now. You make this suggestion every time we start meditation. It's very useful. We start the meditation, the first thing, here and now. Because maybe last time you meditated, you had a great experience. And if you come to meditation and you think, oh, last time was really good, I'm going to repeat that Big mistake. <laughs> Sorry about that. Just sport the meditation already. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or maybe the last time you meditated, you just fell asleep. You know, that's all you do. That's the last dozen meditations, you're just bobbing up and down. So, oh, every time I meditate, I fall asleep. Big mistake. How can you change if you, if you rigidly define yourself in terms of what happened in the past? This moment, in reality, this is not a spin, in reality, this moment is absolutely unique. That's the truth. This moment has never been like this and could never be like this ever again. All the conditions that configure to make this moment what it is for each of us is absolutely, absolutely unique. And so why do we assume that it's like it was in the past? Well, just because we didn't get trained to think otherwise. You know? yeah. Heedlessness meant that we dwell on the past. We find an identity in memories. Just as we find an identity in the compulsive judging mind tendency and discriminative intelligence, we find our identity in that. It's a false identity. Good to undo it. We can also find a false identity in our memories. I'm somebody like this. I was born in, in New Zealand in Te Aumutu in 1951, September 16th, 1951, and then I moved to live in Moranza, and then I grew up like that. And I had those parents, and my, my brother and I, we didn't get on, and then my father, he never did this, and my mother, she did that, and, and then my sister, well, you know, my sister, and, and then we moved to that school, and I had that experience in that school, and... And then when I was did this and my first job, and we can have this whole history of who I am. Well, yes, those memories are you know, relatively valid, but to be locked into them limits us. Just the same as being locked into the discriminative intelligence limits us. Being locked into memory limits us, unskillful. Being locked into fantasies of the future you know, if you've got a creative mind, which probably I'm sure all of us here do have, you, know, you imagine all the wonderful things that could happen in the future. I mean, I just, you know, I have the obsessions, some of you know, the obsessions that I can have about building. I just love building. Now we've got the potential of this buying the lake and the property down the hill. I, you know, I have to really restrain my mind from, you know, I was down there again today and it's this place we could do this here and these trees, we could plant these trees there and, my capacity for imagining things, you know, I got really good visualizing capacity. And, but it can become intoxicating. You get intoxicated by these beautiful fantasies that one can have. Or people are into business. I'm not into business myself, but if you're into business, you can imagine deals that you can strike and in the future and you know, computer programmers, you know, wonderful things you could do if only you could just crack this one. You know, you, in other words, whatever we're doing, we can get lost in the future also. Getting lost in the past, getting lost in the future means we lose the groundedness of this moment. The actuality of this moment, our feet on the ground in this moment. So we've got to bring ourselves back to this moment. So again, it's a, it's a, it's a training we can do. All of these things. Here and now, whole body mind, judgment-free awareness. It's something that we can do formally for a period of our meditation or we can just do in everyday life as things are going by. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs> Sorry.